Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen, a topic that keeps talkback radio phone lines running hot. When they're not talking about too many foreigners coming into the country, it's foreigners buying too much of our land or too many of our companies. So today we ask foreign ownership, is it a good thing or a bad thing? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Yes, hello, I'm Phil Dobby. Now, foreign ownership is a contentious issue. We blame foreign-owned companies when they downgrade or pull out of a country. Uh, And we don't like foreigners owning land because we fear food security uh, is going to be compromised, whatever that means. I mean, if World War III strikes, I would have thought we'd still be able to access the food in our fields, even if it's owned by foreign companies, wouldn't you? I don't think we'll really care too much about who owns the fields. So are we right to be worried about foreign ownership, foreign companies or individuals own land, farms in other words, or mining land, and they own houses and businesses. Is any of that a problem? Uh, I wonder how much of this is overblown. Well, Steve, I mean, in Australia, is it overgrown, uh, overblown? Because 14% of agricultural land is in foreign ownership. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot to me. 14% is pretty substantial, actually. And if you think about uh, how does it relate to the productivity of the other sections that are under under ownership, it depends upon – and a lot of that ownership is, is the enormous uh, – maybe people's uh, vision and ideas, it's truly enormous uh, – land devoted to um, cattle farming in the north of the country. So there are some farms in the north of the country that are bigger than Belgium, mm. so uh, which are foreign-owned. And uh, you, you, you would expect those to be um, – the higher productivity levels and some of the some of the more uh, you know small scale dairy farming and things of that nature that uh, tend to remain in local ownership, but I um, I the, the, I've got an ambivalent feeling towards it because it depends on um, you know to what extent is this a case of um, um, vive la difference and you have a, a, a different approach to capitalism having an impact on your um, on your local society in ways which can both can both be, be beneficial because new ways of doing things are brought in mm. uh, because you can always see in, in that sense the movement of Amazon into a different country as is also happening in Australia right now as a sign of that and that's a technology which no local uh, the, the Amazon uh, marketplace is a technology that no Australian company has developed any particular Oh. Um, variant of, therefore, you've got a, a new form of commerce for the society. Right. So you're saying that so you're saying that's a good thing. I mean, to use the Australian vernacular, it's like a kick up the ass for the retail industry, isn't it? Which it needs. Yeah. yeah. So in that case, you can say, all right, it's it's good to have these you know, these foreign uh, foreign ideas coming in because they are ideas that were not developed domestically and they are worth uh, experiencing. Equally, of course. Uh, there'll be, you know, Tesla vehicles turning up in the country. Yeah, um, but that's uh, a, that's a different proposition to owning land, isn't it? So you have this you have this argument that uh, you know we are literally in Australia selling the farm. In other words, you know, here's here's land that we're using to produce goods which we're selling to ourselves or selling overseas. Yeah. Why would we sell that land? to foreign owners who reap the benefits of it and uh, and also repatriate the profits back overseas. Well, this, this, this comes back to the question of whether it's a, a positive development because you're getting some new ideas coming in or it's a negative one because your own economy is unsustainable in various ways and you end up having to sell off the the, the, you know, the crown jewels to, to finance your activities. And that's the area where I think uh, I've, I've got my uh, cr- critical attitude towards things like land being sold because 
the, the, the classic um, balance situation for the globe is the sum of all trade surpluses is zero until such time as we start trading, trading with, uh, you know, any Elon Musk outputs on Mars, uh, the balance of trade for the entire planet is zero. If you're running a trade deficit and persistently doing it, uh, then there is, and you have to balance that loss in the current account uh, by generating money to buy uh, the goods you're buying from overseas on the capital account. Right. And that in, in, you know, that, that's putting it in a rather jargonistic way. But if you, if you run a, you know, if you run a, say, a, a billion dollar deficit in one year, what that means is that the, if you had stocks of foreign money, stocks of, of Australian dollars at the, at the uh, sorry, American dollars, uh, let's just take a British example now, um, stocks of uh, American dollars at the um, Bank of England and your local consumers were persistently buying more American goods than they were buying British goods, then to actually pay for those uh, American goods, you've got to um, either use what you've got in reserve. If you don't have enough in reserve, then you have to sell um, various assets domestically mm. uh, to, to raise American dollars. But these so are private. These are private companies, obviously with farms. These are private individuals who are selling the farms, and you know, I, I guess they they've probably got mixed feelings as well because they're getting a better price. If you open the universe uh, from domestic buyers to to global buyers, obviously you're going to push the price up. You're going to get more for your land. Not, oh yeah, and again, again, that's a quote taking it out of context in some ways because has the economy been growing so slowly uh, that you've been uh, running yourself slowly into the ground and therefore the capacity for local buyers to pay a decent price uh, is not because they're being stingy compared to the foreigners, it's because they simply aren't generating enough uh, income flow themselves to be able to purchase those domestically generated assets. And it's more that case that applies in countries like the UK where it's losing land overseas and certainly Australia, which has been running trade deficits of the order of 5% of GDP for virtually 40 or 50 years. But it's, interesting, because- it's interesting you mentioned the UK because you know who the biggest landholder in, in Australia is? It's not China. It is the it's UK. the UK, is it? Mm, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty close. I mean, China's about to take over. Um, mm. But, yeah, certainly the biggest landholder at the moment. Hmm. Mm. So there we are. Um, but, I mean, on the balance of trade question, I mean, it's, you're on a hiding to nothing, aren't you? Because, I mean, you, you ultimately you make the balance of trade worse. So, I mean, because you're producing goods. And, 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 okay, a foreign owner might get more out of that land or more out of that factory and might be more productive. Uh, but also because they're taking a, a slug of that money back overseas, that's not helping your balance of trade situation. Well, fundamentally, what you've handed over is the, the, the your capitalists are now foreign. Your workers are domestic. Yeah. And uh, it's the extent to which uh, your local market encourages those capitalists to invest domestically as to how much of those profits are retained inside the country and used to develop uh, your industrial base or your, your, your corporate base in, in, the, in, the, in the host country. But this is the classic story of multinational corporations. And, um, and when, when it's amplified by countries running persistent trade deficits, and of course, these things are all supposed to be eliminated by floating exchange rates something like 30 or 40 years ago. Well, so much for that story. Uh, we've still got persistent trade balances around the world. And what happens in that case, the countries running the deficits ultimately are ceding their capitalist class to a foreign, to foreign, a foreign capitalist class because, uh, as you say, over time, the ownership of resources uh, falls into foreign hands. And you don't really have any domestic capitalists anymore. Not you don't have none, obviously, but you have a, a decline in the extent to which there are local capitalists who are potentially locally likely to invest locally. So it's the slow growth of the economy because it's been you know, less successful industrial policies, 
the successful exchange rate policies, as John Mills emphasises, uh, means that over time you actually end up having um, to sell your assets. Your assets are owned by the capitalists rather than the workers, so you end up having you know, domestic wage and income and foreign foreign profit. But don't you have more of everything? If it's foreign investment, I mean, that's extra money or it's it's extra capital which is flowing into the economy. So, I mean, land is a, a finite resource. But if we're talking about, for example, Amazon getting in or or new companies investing, I mean, first of all, that's a sign of, uh, of confidence that, that there's an opportunity to grow in that economy. But also, it's, it's a capital inflow, isn't it? I mean, isn't that a good thing? Well, here we go. You're, doing, you're changing devil's advocate mode rather rapidly there, mate. <laughs> I uh, do very well, don't I? <laughs> oh, dear, I know. But uh, if, if we – what's pardon me? If we my, – my mouse just went flying. If we if we start with the um, uh, the early stages, if you, if you have a, a country running a trade deficit and, and very early on 100% of its, if its industry is locally owned and 0% foreign owned and you then have to, um, to sell – uh, you know, let's say you're running a one percent trade of, of, of GDP trade deficit, so you're forced to raise that amount of money in foreign currency, and you do it by selling. Um, let's say in this case you're talking about selling land is one way of doing it. Let's say let's say you're also accept uh, foreign investment by a corporation like Amazon, and that one percent uh, investment by them makes up for your trade deficit, and you have a level of uh, of economic performance similar to the, if you'd had you know. A, a fully balanced trade situation, you might even gain if the scale of the investment is, uh, to, well, you know, it's, it's, again, hypothetical figures, but 2 or 3% of GDP rather than the uh, the 1% trade deficit you ran. So in that case, you do get a domestic stimulus. The question then is what happens over time as, the, um, as, as that share of the ownership rises? What you have is a a rising claim on the, on the profit flows of the country going to the foreign uh, corporations rather than going to the domestic corporations. Yeah. And then it's a question of you know, just, just how profitable it is to invest in your country versus investing in another. And if it gets to the point where you have a, you know, you, you are a, a dominant figure in a particular industry, Amazon's obviously a good show, a case to choose there. Then once you get to the scale that's necessary to, to, um, to, you know, open up the entire market you've moved into, um, then in, in terms of the, their own country, com- uh, company's calculations, it would be an, uh, an unsuccessful investment if it didn't take out more than it put in its initial investment. Right. So, but, if it, but, if it, but if it grows that sector, if it, if it, yeah. if it's, it, it has created a more productive way of operating and it's increased consumption for that sector, I mean, you could still have, you know, a, a situation where everyone benefits. They could be taking but, more, but more what money you then out of have, the- But what you then have is a chronic lock-in of your trade, if your balance of payments deficit. So, so saying trade beforehand is really the current account, yeah. which is the balance, balance of overall payments, including repatriation of profits. Now, if you get to the point where, uh, you know, yes, it's helped grow your economy and so on, but then the proportion of your um, your current account deficit, which is predominantly because of repatriation of profits, uh, is you know of the order of three or four percent of GDP. Then you've got permanent lock-in. It's no longer a case of if you just improve your productivity, you can turn that around. Uh, you have you know if if forty percent of your local industry is actually foreign-owned, uh, then and forty percent of those profits are being repatriated all the time. Mm. And there's your lock-in for a current account deficit. So it's a question of finding the balance, isn't it? Because I mean, and I, I think the Amazon one is a great example because those who are not familiar with the, with Australia, Australian retail has been dominated, uh, or certain sections of the Australian retail industry has been dominated by old school players like Harvey Norman that have have just not 
innovated and they are going to uh, feel the hurt um, and th- th- there is a lot of money going to be uh, repatriated overseas as a result of it but if it hadn't happened Australian retail would continue to um, be in the dark ages and you know we're, we're seeing very slow retail growth in Australia I'm, I'm sure there is more money to be made in that sector mm. if there's innovation and this is the this is the important point that you what you're getting out of the foreigners can be that innovation that is not happening domestically. Yeah. Okay. And uh, but of course, there's another way to go about that. This this is uh, one of, one of my colleagues is a, a staunch believer that we should actually be selling blueprints to each other rather than selling products to each other. Mm. And uh, you know, you'd buy the Amazon blueprint, and then a local company would 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 take that on rather than Amazon. So there'd be some uh, need to pay a um, a royalty fee. But not that the profit repatriation, but that's hype. You know, that's that's in, in the hypothetical but, world. Yeah, you, you, but I mean, you, you could but you could also just say, I mean, you don't even need to do that. You could, I mean, if Australian retail uh, was so keen to improve themselves, they could just say, well, let's take some good people from overseas who've done it overseas, which I think they've sort of half tried to do. But look, if the market's not moving, if there's no competition, you don't need to. You just say, well, why invest that money? Let's just do the things the way we've been doing them because we don't face any challenges. Yeah, and uh, and that's the the positive side of the. Of foreign uh, investment coming in. I mean, another classic in that case was the IGA company when that moved into the Australian market again, something we, we, you and I both both saw the effects of. But certainly Amazon is a much larger technological move uh, that means that an industry which has been um, complacent and, 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 and basically you know, charging large margins and suddenly forced uh, to be very dramatically shaken up and margins will fall. But at the same time, you then look, okay, where are the products coming from that are being sold in that market right now? And uh, on that, that particular front with Amazon, I saw figures yesterday saying that something like 55 or 60% of the products are being sourced direct from China, mm. uh, whereas the common situation for Amazon's operations is that about 30% are, 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 um, are sourced from China directly rather than from local uh, suppliers, whether those local suppliers themselves indirectly buy from China and store on local warehouses and so on. Um, so that's coming back again to the question of, you know, are you being de-industrialised by doing this as well? Yeah. But, I mean, surely some form of direct investment where you're buying plant and machinery, I, I mean, it's still, I mean, take your point, but it is still a commitment to the economy and that's surely a good thing versus the alternative, which is that, that foreigners are buying shares in Australian companies. Yeah, I mean, I prefer, prefer the direct investment where you actually get the, the technology being transferred. And of course, with the classic instance of a country doing this extremely successfully was China, mm. uh, because you know, I was back there in eighty one, eighty two, when they were building the the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone. When actually went to went to it when it was the concrete still being laid, of all things, by an Australian company called CSR. And um, when we had the briefing on on their proposals, what, why, why were they establishing the free trade zone? It wasn't just to get jobs for their workers, which is the usual motivation that applied in most of Southeast Asia, because this form of multinational relocation of production began uh, back in the 1960s, really. So China was quite late to joining the party. They'd seen what had gone wrong in the rest of the world, and, and what had happened is a um, foreign a multinational would move in with its technology, uh, establish local production. That might be like a local chip manufacturing uh, site, Obviously, a lot of it was, was textiles as well. Let's that, stick with uh, with producing uh, computer chips more cheaply. Um, as the wages rose in the local area, they would then move to another country, mm. and the, there'd be no benefit to the local capitalists from um, from that 
from that initial investment, nor would they benefit, of course, when the company then uh, pulled up stocks and went to another country where the wages were lower. So what the Chinese insisted upon was that any foreign investor had to have a domestic partner. And within five years, that domestic partner had to own 50% of the business. Now, because the, the wage differentials were so great in the 1980s, that was a good deal for American capitalists. Even though they were going to get half the profit stream out of what they created, uh, it was still a dramatic increase in their profits relative to producing those goods back in America and paying higher American wages. So that, that was done in a very intelligent way by China. And what it's now meant, of course, China's running a huge trade surplus because it actually has ownership yeah. of a lot of those resources. And the, the, the huge motivation for the Chinese Communist Party came from many of them are engineers, and they wanted that technology as soon as possible. And that was a very deliberate reason for bringing those corporations in as well as the, uh, the financial aspects. And it's curious, isn't it, how, uh, you know, we're in the West, we're very happy to see China or other countries buying in, uh, even if it's um, money from the Chinese government. And that's the interesting thing as well, isn't it, when it's it's uh, foreign investment by foreign government. So a great example is Hinkley Point C, the, uh, the new nuclear power plant for the UK, which is going to be paid for by French and Chinese money, and most of it is going to come from the governments of those countries. And that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, it, why, the same why thing take, for the, the why same, take, why the take same. foreign government money when we could just use our own own government the, money? The, the same thing for the foreign uh, foreign ownership of the rail system in the UK, which yeah. I still find quite stunning. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time comparing just how bad the British rail system is compared to what you find in the European continent. But at the same time, a lot of the European continent companies, government-owned, are the ones who own large shares of the, um, of the, of the British rail system. Mm. So that comes down to just what are the encouragements for them to in- invest domestically. And when you have a captive, when, when you have a government-enabled captive uh, um, transportation corridors to be developed in belief that would give you private sector ownership, which are necessarily better than government. No, it's not, because you can basically um, just just charge whatever you like for, for crap uh, infrastructure and crap service on those lines because nobody has any alternative line to go on. The whole idea of competition doesn't make any sense in that situation. Yeah, still better than the Australian trains, mind you. Uh, I guess one of the um, one of the big problems, though, is when the economy is down, when the chips are down, uh, that is when you are most susceptible to this foreign investment, which, as you say, then makes the situation worse down the track because yeah. all this money is being repatriated overseas. So no, no surprise, we saw a big increase in, in foreign direct investment in the UK in 2016. And I think probably we're going to find it's subsequent to that as well, because sterling became a bit of a bargain. So, I mean, the exchange rate uh, has, a, has a big role in foreign investment. Yeah, and that's the that's sort of in some ways the other side of the advantage of a trade of a devaluation as well, because the devaluation makes your local com- manufacturers more competitive, uh, if there are any, or it makes it a bit worth their while to consider repatriating, as long as the cost change is substantial enough. But at the same time, it also means those assets are a bargain for foreign buyers. Yeah, so you don't necessarily increase. Uh, it, it isn't isn't just down to the question of the the trade with different countries. It's how much of that is multinational uh, owned. So do we? So do we need controls? Then I mean, do we need to actually say there needs to be some sort of stipulation on on just how much foreign ownership there is in a in a developed country? I mean, poor countries are different. Well, we'll look at those in just a second. But countries like the UK and Australia, do we need to put controls? I mean, there are sort of like um, you know national interest controls, but beyond that, should we be putting percentage figures, for example, as the as an absolute maximum? I think we should certainly have. Um 
a, a policy that actually bites on that front because like this again in the Australian case I think the Foreign Investment Review Board uh, had over over its enormous part of its lifetime had about 10,000 applications for foreign ownership uh, and about one or two of which are challenged uh, so there's a, a trivial um, barrier these days and it's largely because of the ideology uh, that you know, the sort of the neoliberal ideology that lies behind those policies that's saying, well, uh, anybody who wants to buy for a higher price than, than, than the, the locals do must necessarily be better for the local economy than, uh, than the local buying it. And that b- m- mindset, uh, again, there's what's, what's called the pitchford uh, hypothesis. Then if you actually heard of that one, you've, you're lucky personally, you're not a professional economist, but a guy called, uh, uh, Pitch, I think it's Pitchford, an Australian um, conventional economist, argued that, and this is where, where I, I find the, the problems with, with this form of thinking, uh, said that if countries, if, if a country is running a trade deficit, that must, and, and therefore it's importing foreign capital, that must mean that foreign capital is being used uh, with a rational eye towards future profits. So the deficits now will become surpluses sometime in the unspecified future. Now, that thesis was put forward, I think, about 25 or 30 years ago. And uh, I don't know whether the person who made it, I think the picture of it is still alive, uh, but he might never see, live to see the turnaround point that he's seeing because the turnaround just doesn't necessarily, it just doesn't happen. It's, um, it's not a case of rational calculations about uh, the future profitability uh, and therefore, you invest, you, buy, you import now, import capital now to have uh, a surplus in, in later years. It's just you're growing more slowly than the rest of the world through bad industrial policies, mm. through um, low levels of investment um, and low levels of technological technological development. And you don't necessarily increase that by handing over the ownership to foreign capitalists rather than domestic ones. Well, I wonder whether, you know, part of the thinking is a little bit outdated because maybe, uh, you know, maybe if we look back to the industrial age, if somebody built a, if foreign money built a factory in Melbourne and that that factory employed, I don't know, 15,000 people, that's 15,000 people earning money, uh, paying taxes, buying stuff, and that could be good for the economy if the alternative was nobody built that factory and they were unemployed. But, of course, the, the issue is they're probably investing in, in automation and not employing too many people, and so most of the money is just chuffing off back overseas. Well, again, it's, it's, the, it's the income flow question because it's, it, this, this is the difficulty of trying to think about the global economy in terms of countries versus countries when um, the corporations straddle those companies in quite complicated ways. So, I mean, the classic, um, the classic company in that sense would be Microsoft, which has, you know, um, develops its technology predominantly in America and India and then has you know, trade flows coming from all around the world, in particular in the UK case coming out of Ireland, where it has its offices for tax tax reasons. You start getting uh, a, a corporate international trade structure, which is far stronger and far more flexible than the uh, than the uh, international trade uh, between corp- between countries. And this is. To me, the main the main problem we face a real weakening of the uh, of the state system versus the corporate system, and so far there's been uh, very little sign that the nation state has any idea of how to cope with this. Mm. Outside the case of uh, countries like America, like, like Germany, like China, like Japan, uh, well, China, G- Germany, and China in particular, uh, which have used this um, multinational structure to strengthen their own domestic economies. 
and the, the combination of both them being the foreign owners, so they're getting the the repatriating profits from the rest of the world and running a trade surplus as well. Uh, that's made them much, much stronger economies. And countries like the UK, uh, like Australia, are suffering from a, a deindustrialization process because they simply don't have the local level of investment occurring. Yeah. And again, this is what Keynes was trying to stop back in the days of the bank hall and the, and the bloody Americans giving us the American dollar as the currency completely ruined uh, that whole idea of a, of a control mechanism on countries running large current account surpluses. So how do we counter that? I mean, uh, in a way, we're almost uh, behaving like the poor countries uh, with the multinationals, aren't we? I mean, let's let's look at that before we ask, answer the question about how we fix the problem in the developed world. I mean, in, in poor countries, foreign investment's always been a bit of a question mark, hasn't it? Because if they don't pollute the environment or corrupt officials, then you could argue that, you know, it's a good thing because it's money making uh, its way into a, a country that might not otherwise, and there's some investment happening. But the other thing is, do they use up all the resources, take all the workers, repatriate all the, all the profits out of the, out of the economy? But, I mean... If you get the balance right, obviously it's good for those poor countries because it helps them to uh, to move up a notch. And that's certainly what's happening with China's investments in Africa. Mm. So, uh, uh, but at the same time, I mean, the China, that's another uh, element of the, the nationalist element of China versus what happens with American corporations. They are predominantly providing, uh, quite frequently providing work for Chinese workers who are being um, you know, shipped with the country, with the yep. companies to go and build these um resources in foreign countries and own and operate. Um, so you, you're getting uh, only to the same extent that uh, foreign enclave buys local goods. Uh, do you have any real benefit for the local economy? Uh, but you do have this huge level of infrastructure being developed, which wouldn't have been there otherwise. Right. So, yeah. but, they're, but they're just chewing up resources. They're, they're just claiming the resources as their own, in effect. I mean, particularly well, they're, they're, they're also creating them because they're, you know, they're laying the roads, they're laying you know, telecommunications backbones, they're putting ports in. Um, of course, they end up having a, a fair hold of, of the uh, international trade coming out of those countries, but they're providing an infrastructure that wouldn't be there Otherwise, so it is a messy world, mate. This it is, is a messy world. world. So how do we get the balance right then? So to take you know developed economies that have a have a big trade deficit like we do in the UK. What do what what do we do about it? How do we how do we stop it getting worse through foreign investment while having the benefit of having foreign companies helping to innovate? Mm, I think unfortunately this is one of those cases where we have to if we're ever going to get out of the problem. We have to have a a move into the system we should have had back after the Second World War, which is the Bretton Woods system, as Keynes proposed it, with an international currency mm. uh, where you've got some capacity to control the extent to which current account deficits will accumulate and then weaken your country um, uh, in its uh, in giving it a need for foreign capital, which means it ends up um, handing over ownership to foreign corporations rather than readjusting its exchange rate through the bank hall mechanism, which was Keynes' original idea. Right. And it's, it's so also... So, it, you th it, so you think if you did that and you had adjust, you know, but, but the... So in effect, exchange rates are being adjusted according to the uh, relative trade deficits, and that's going to balance out the attractiveness of, of investing in various countries. Yeah, and and uh, and that was, you know, one of Keynes' un, uh, not often uh, remembered statements was to say, and above all else, let finance be national. Well, we've done a great job on that front, haven't we? <laughs> and the extent to which we've allowed these uh, trade imbalances, current account imbalances, repatriation of profit flows to become as enormous as they are, um, you know, it isn't something we've managed particularly well. 
So finally then, uh, let me give you what the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade on their website list as the benefits of foreign investment. You tell me, there's only three of them. For each of them, you tell me whether there's anything in it at all or is it all just pure bunkum. Number one, uh, it helps Australia reach its economic potential by providing capital to finance new industries and enhance existing industries, boosting infrastructure, productivity and employment opportunities in the process. Hallelujah. It's... (laughs) Again, is this a question of your domestic um, money production systems? In fact, fundamentally, the banking system not providing finance for firms to invest, the mm. government trying to run the surplus when it shouldn't be trying to do that, starving you with those funds you'd have otherwise. And when you bring in the money, the money internationally, what you're effectively doing is making up for your, inca- your, in, your um, poor capacity of poor performance in producing your own domestic money supply. So I don't think that one particularly counts. The only time it counts is when you use that foreign money to buy technology that doesn't exist domestically. Right. Okay. So in other words, we should be doing it ourselves. The bank yeah. should be pulling their finger out and, and lending the money in, 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 in a productive way. The second one, the higher growth supported by foreign investment pays dividends for all Australians by increasing tax revenues to federal and state government. That almost deserves a laugh, doesn't it? I was going to say, it doesn't actually explain how that works. No, because <laughs> as long as they don't establish operations in the Cayman Islands, oh dear, they do. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the problems, and this is one of the reasons we have such uh, a, a conflictual society these days, the extent to which corporations have managed to evade the taxes we're trying to place on them, and the, the best place countries, companies do that are the foreign-owned ones. They've already got the structures in place. All right, then the final one, by bringing in new businesses with connections in different markets, it opens up additional export opportunities, boosting our overall export performance it also encourages competition and increased innovation by bringing new technologies and services to the Australian market. So I guess this is the innovation one that we're talking about. The latter point is one we were actually agreeing with earlier on. Um, It it is also possible to say, well, you've got these uh, these channels that come out of the the foreign corporations um, working domestically. Maybe, therefore, a domestic company can piggyback onto the the foreigners. And now I knew some people work in the audio industry who saw some potential for... um, um, them to be able to piggyback their technology uh, on uh, when foreign uh, companies like AR and so on turned up in the country producing uh, uh, high end stereo equipment, they saw a way that they could actually get their technology piggybacked back onto the rest of AR's distribution system in the rest of the world. So it does happen. So I think one out of three ain't bad for the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs. <laughs> no, it's not bad, is it? So the real answer, though, so a neutral international currency where we can uh, we can manage the uh, the difference in, uh, in in the terms of trade uh, given that that's not going to happen in a hurry i mean it's the, it's the other alternative uh, in the short term that we just treat it with a bit more seriousness and look harder at those foreign investment opportunities and just should be asking can we do this ourselves do we need it yeah, and I think a major, a major, surely one of the major issues we face globally has been these current account imbalances. Mm. Unless we start saying, well, they're actually a serious topic, we need to reduce them. They're not going to fall of their own volition. Um, then that's, I think, the perspective I'd like to take on looking at foreign ownership in future. Right. But that point is, is hardly ever raised. No one seems particularly concerned about uh, balance of trade. Well, that comes down to being, when you're concerned about it, you become a you're, you're on on the periphery. A figure like John Mills has been arguing this case in the UK now for twenty or thirty years that um, by having a, an overvalued exchange rate, which is his main explanation for the situation, you end up uh, de- destroying your own industry. And 
I think this is that is one of the related elements that's quite correct about this case. If you let the current account deficit get as extreme as it's got and for sustain for as long as it does, then ultimately you, particularly in a world where people are trying to run government surpluses all the time, you end up having a depressed level of economic growth in your own country and you end up paying for it rather than learning them rather than benefiting from it. All right. Good point to leave it on. Uh, we'll catch you again soon, Steve. Thank you. Okay. Well, next time, another topic that relates very much to now, corporate tax. Donald Trump is trying to get his corporate tax rates down so that the same level as many other competing countries like the UK, for example. And so long as countries like Ireland will run low corporate taxes to become a safe haven for major com- corporations trying to reduce their liabilities, does it actually make sense to have a corporate tax at all? Uh, what would happen if you just got rid of it? You might be surprised, in fact, what a small slice of the total revenue pie it accounts for. So that's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.